date is the 24th of June, 1995. And I know, I know, I know you know where you were that day. You know where you were that day, Saturday, the 24th of June, 1995. We saw at Ellis Park, Lady Smith Black Mambazo, together with Tandega, PJ Powers, entertain the world in African color, in African vibrancy, through the African drum and beautiful vocals, because a giant in the literal sense was about to be slain by the Springboks. It was no small job, a job nonetheless, that with a drop goal from Joel Stransky, deep into extra time, sealed the fate, not just of a game, not just of the Springboks, frankly, of a nation. One of the greatest moments to be a South African was that day. Little is said from its history. Some 40 years before that, culminating, some 25 years before that actually, in the Stop the 70s Tour. We are watching Wimbledon, where every now and then there will be a break of play because rain stopped play. In 1975, it was Hain who stopped play. Good evening, Peter Hain. Thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, Sangazo. Nice to talk to you. It's an emotional conversation we're about to have, for obvious reasons, because we're talking about things that South Africans, whilst they might all know about, oftentimes tend to suppress. Because equally, there are divisive conversations. But we're having part two of the conversation we started last week with Andre Urendal. Pitch battles, sport racism and resistance. And we're going to talk about being in exile, the anti-apartheid movement, as well as holding institutions, systems and the political elite to power through your experiences. But if we can just spend literally five to ten minutes talking about pitch battles, your role specifically and what would have agitated you. As a young 19-year-old boy, many would have referred to you as, to take on the role that you did that could quite easily have killed you. Well, first of all, my childhood was in South Africa. I was born to South African parents. My dad was born in Durban, my mother in Port Alfred, and I grew up in Pretoria. And I played sport, as the law required, only against whites and only with whites. I watched Arcadia, my local soccer team. That had um, predominantly white spectators, but it had very noisy, vocal, enthusiastic black spectators as well, fenced off from us white spectators as apartheid decreed. And we're talking now about the late 1950s and early 1960s. Yes. And then the government brought in a proclamation to ban those black uh, black spectators and make it whites only, and they were so enthusiastic, they shinned up trees overlooking the ground and got pulled down, bloodied by police dogs. So those were experiences, as the son of, of, of anti-apartheid parents who were jailed and banned and eventually forced into exile, that were formative for me. And when we were forced to go and live in London as a 16-year-old in 1966, a few years later, I decided as a sports-mad South African by origin, to try and do something about the Springbok tour, touring in 1969-70. 
I came up with the idea of non-violent direct action, pitch invasions to stop the tour. And our book, Pitch Battles, which I co-author with Andre Woodendahl, my close friend uh, from Cape Town, is about that struggle. It describes that campaign, but much, much more broadly, as you know, because you kindly mm. read it. But that's how I came to be an activist, as a sports-mad anti-apartheid activist who focused upon stopping all-white racist Springbok tours. And remember, at that time, the, the white head of South African rugby, Donnie Craven, said, over my dead body oh, yes. will there ever be a black Springbok. That was what we were fighting against. We were fighting for the opportunity that I was emotionally overwhelmed by when Sio Khaleesi lifted the World Cup in 2019, the Rugby World Cup, as uh, captain of the Springboks, which would never have been possible when we were stopping them playing. Donnie Craven said those words in 1969, and exactly, exactly 60 years on, 50 years on, a bigger pardon, 50 years on, they came to life. Sia Kolisi, indeed, not just a black Springbok, not just a black Springbok captain, which Donnie Craven was, a black Springbok captain who won a Rugby World Cup following in the footsteps of Francois Pino and John Smith before him. Be very sure that what you say might come to life. But Peter, the Stop the 70s tour in the UK of the Springboks, of the cricket team led by Ali Bacher, not long thereafter, you were in Australasia campaigning for much the same thing. You clearly knew as a white South African where it hurt the white establishment the most through sport because it was through sport that they could continue their propaganda mission to create the illusion that all is well in South Africa, whereas it was anything but. The conception of that idea, the will to carry it through, and the stamina once you had started to persist because the tracks were anything but smooth. Yes, they were. I mean, I was called public enemy number one at that stage by mm. the media and by my critics in 1969-70 and for some years afterwards. And Andre, who was a young uh, white Afrikaner being brought up in Queenstown and rugby mad, used to cut out news from newspapers cuttings about the Springboks. And he actually showed me a cutting from one of the South African, white South African newspapers at the time with pictures of me as the demo king with the long hair and so on as to be vilified. And yes, it, it, it meant that I was targeted. I received a letter bomb of the kind that was assassinating uh, anti-apartheid leaders across the world uh, from the South African security forces. Fortunately, it didn't go off and a number of other attacks were made on me. But the important thing about that campaign, as you imply, is that we won. We disrupted the Springbok tour, so there never was again a whites-only Springbok tour to Britain until, and, and, and the Springboks never toured Britain until after Nelson Mandela walked free and the beginnings of the transition from apartheid to majority rule occurred. And the same was true of the cricket team, because our target in the Stop the 70 Tour campaign was really the 1970 cricket tour, captained, as you say, by Ali Bakker, an all-white team, Basil D'Oliveira, a coloured South African from Cape Town, could not play for his own country then, had to come and play for England. And I remember seeing him as a young 
boy uh, as a young teenager going to watch cricket because I was mad about cricket and, and soccer. Not so much rugby, though I've subsequently become so. And watching Basil de Oliveira playing for England. So he couldn't play for his own country. And we stopped that 1970 tour by the public threats and the mobilization of 100,000 activists. And I found myself leading that campaign. And they called it off because we'd have wrecked it. And white South Africa never toured again, like in rugby, until after the transition. And then the following year, as you mentioned, mm. the same thing happened. It was like a an action replay, <clears throat> uh, a Springbok tour to Australia, followed by a planned cricket tour. We disrupted the Springbok tour. They invited me to go over for two weeks during it to, to speak at rallies and demonstrations and uh, speak privately to activists about what we'd done. And then the threat of those demonstrations to wreck the cricket tour uh, to Australia of 1971 produced the same result, the stopping of the, of the tour to Australia. So yeah. after that, white South Africa was in isolation. The Olympics expulsion happened in 1970. Virtually every other sport in, in, in the world, South Africa was excluded from until apartheid, uh, until the transition took place. Do you not feel that your work needs to evolve in some form of other equivalent of Stop the 70 Tour? Here's why I say that. You mentioned the great Basil Dolivera, played 44 tests for, the United, for, for England, made his debut in his 30s, couldn't tour here. He went on to finish his career averaging 40, which in those days at test level was just phenomenal. It's the equivalent of what would be 50-55 now. And you get a bloody Jackie McGlue who paid, who played for South Africa, what, 55 tests, could only average 30 maybe, confirming that the likes of Basil Dolivera were not good enough. And in recent memory here in South Africa, you've got Pat Simcox, who only turned my stomach when he bowled, and a guy like Buta Dipinar, who just averaged over 30, commenting about the fact that politics in sport should not be part of it. This, of course, in the wake of players taking the knee. Two white South African cricketers, 50 years on, still not being able to recognize that the only reason why they were in those respective pro-tier sides was simply because they were white, because their stats say nothing about their ability at national level. How then do we have the equivalent of Stop the 70s tour now? Well, that is for South Africans to decide, but I don't think that it's the same situation as we faced. I mean, you had a racist team touring. All South African teams were never South African teams under apartheid. They were white South African teams. And the same was true for generations previously under British colonial rule. And uh, so it is different. But what astonished me was those statements by uh, uh, by those two uh, cricketers, white cricketers. Jackie McGlue was an apartheid supporter, like Gary Player, the, the, the golfer, the international golfing, white South African golfing champion. Mm. They supported apartheid. They spoke up. They played under apartheid. They loved it. They have no right, in my view, to block progress on Black Lives Matter movements. And I was, of all the, of all the teams in the cricket teams in the world... I think the Proteus should have been the first one to take the knee, uh, to stand up for Black Lives Matter values, Tell not start why. using it. Because South Africa's history was of whites only being able to play for their country. 
until quite recently. And, of course, there is still the remnants of apartheid in sport as well because they're not the same opportunities for black kids to get to scale the heights, uh, even if they have the ability. I mean, Sio Khaleesi would never have been able to hoist the World Cup in 2019 mm. uh, had he not been plucked from abject poverty where his main objective each day was to get a, a decent meal to stop his his hunger, not to, to kick a rugby ball. He, his talent was spotted, fortunately, for South Africa, and he went to Gray's um, High School, uh, an elite r rugby school, as some of the other Black Springboks did as well. So, you know, there's still a long way to go, and those white Proteus players should be standing up for equality and equal opportunities. Apartheid may have gone, but its legacy still remains. And so I think the Proteus should have been the first to take the knee, and those white players should have been thanked thank the anti-apartheid movement publicly for giving them the opportunity to play internationally because they would not have been allowed back into a world um, cricket uh, had it not been for the success of the anti-apartheid movement, uh, both internationally and in the resistance that led to the transition from apartheid and apartheid in sport as well. Let's fast forward for want of time. And for those who want to participate in this conversation, the great Lord Peter Hayne is on the line joining us from the UK. He's a parliamentarian now. And what is the UK's gain is most certainly South Africa's gain. Look at our parliament from time to time. You might just get a sense as to why I say that. Johannesburg, 714-2006. Do call us. Drop us a voice note on WhatsApp. 0614-104-107. Of course, all your great works have not gone unnoticed. In fact, you are a recipient of the Order of the Companions of O.R. Tambo. That must have meant something to you, even in private, where after your years of toil, in fact, it became your life's mission to ensure that one thing that Peter Hain, of the many he has done, will be remembered for is that he effectively meant that the nations of the world, open quote, don't play with apartheid, together with everything else, your receipt of that honour from President Tabombik? Well, it was an enormous privilege and unexpected to receive that honour in December 2015. And uh, I, I felt I was receiving it also on behalf of my parents, who sacrificed everything, the country that they loved and of their birth, to have to go into exile because they stopped my dad working. Uh, many others took part in that struggle, many active anti-apartheid activists in Britain. It was not just me. I found myself as the figurehead of the sports apartheid struggle uh, and providing the leadership, especially on militant action, that, that cracked the nut of, of boycott and isolation. Mm. But it was a great privilege, and I, I, I took it, as I say, as, a, uh, as an award to all of us who had stood up for human rights and, and against racism and against apartheid at a time, remember, you know, we now take it for granted that Nelson Mandela and, and Walter Sassouli and Ahmed Kathrada uh, and their comrades walked free from Robben Island. Uh, and we take it for granted that apartheid is no longer on the statute book, but it was a bitter, hard struggle lasting decades in which people were killed they were tortured, they were banished, and it happened to sports officials as well. 
one of the, the, the leading anti-apartheid sports officials, John Harris, was hung in Pretoria Gallows uh, in 1965. He was chair of the non-racial South African Olympic Committee. Um, I think he was uh, just, the first white man at the time to be hung, wasn't he? In, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the political resistance, yes. yes I think white, white criminals might have been hung. But, uh, of course, many black uh, anti-apartheid activists were hung as well. But he was the only white ever to be, to be hung. So, and there were, there were sports officials banned, um, banished uh, black activists in South Africa because of their sport, because they stood up for non-racial sport. And that is why I feel so strongly that um, leading white um, Springboks, Proteas, whatever a sport they, they play in, should be standing up for um, against racism and supporting Black Lives Matter uh, when they're asked to take the knee and not start pontificating about why they don't want to do that. I want to take a call just now. Aisha and Uppington, I have recognized you. I just need to have this follow-up question um, to Mr. Peter Hayne, who, I beg your pardon, received it from President Jacob Getlechegisa Zuma, the National Order for the Order of Companions of O'Ar Tambo. Just about a decade before that, somebody who you obviously would know and know quite well, a veteran of the New Zealand anti-apartheid struggle, particularly when we talk about 1981, the Flower Bomb Test Series, Halt All Racist Tours. The name, Mr. John Minto, might ring a bell, does it not, Peter? It does, yes. He was one of the brave uh, activists uh, who also fought against apartheid in sport. He rejected his nomination for an order of the Companions of Oar Tambo on the basis that South Africa was the democratic country with so much hope. And he went on to say he thought for many people it has been the deepest of disappointments as it certainly had been for him. Now, this is in the mega years. We haven't even seen the Zuma years or anything after that. And he rejected recognition from the establishment of South Africa on the basis that the promise of 94 for him proved hollow against what he was fighting for in the dark days of apartheid. What do you make of that decision? And in the light of what you all know too well is happening in this country that saw you in November 2019 take to the stand at the Zondo Commission, would you receive an honor of that kind again if it were made out to you now? It's probably an unfair question, but just respond in the context of John Minto and in the context of what is happening now and your award. Well, no, it's up to every individual to make their own decisions, and he made his decision. I took it. Remember, this is an independent committee that makes these awards, that makes these recommendations. The president of the day, who happened to be President Zuma when I received mine, but... um, uh, it might not have been. It might have been President Ramaphosa, and I would have been a lot happier receiving it from him. But the president of the day is, as were the the person who passes the award across. He doesn't make the nomination. Uh, the president doesn't make the nomination. It's from an independent committee, and and I think it was it, it was a supreme honour, not just for me, as I say, but my parents mm, for, mm. for the the sacrifice they made, and and many in the British anti-apartheid movement made. There were. In that campaign that I found myself leader of in 1969-70, there were thousands of activists. They were being beaten up, often by the British police. They were taking risks. Uh, they were getting threats, um, and they were they were 
receiving um, criminal records because of invading the pitch and they were often arrested and so on. So I saw myself as, as getting that award for, for there. And yes, of course, I'm very disappointed that the Mandela vision has not been, has been, in fact, has been betrayed, particularly by former President Zuma and, and the Gupta brothers and the rest of the corrupt politicians, some of whom sadly are still around and trying to get back abroad the gravy train. But I don't think that should tarnish or besmirch the anti-apartheid struggle yes. and the recognition that the country wants to pay, pay to it. I think it's right that it does. Many other people receive those the, that, that OR Tambo Award, not just me, many, many others. Uh, and I feel proud to be one of them. You certainly have every right and reason to feel proud, thoroughly deserved. Let's take a, a call for now. 21.37 is the time, just over seven minutes left of this conversation. Lord Peter Hayne is on the line from the UK. Aisha in Uppington is calling. Good evening, Songeza. Good evening, uh, Lord Peter Hayne. I have a message for you to take to the British Parliament and the Queen. Firstly, <laughs> we the people of South Africa request reparations from the British government for their actions during colonialism. Secondly, as a token of goodwill, the British government must provide the funding for the reconstitution of the TRC with an extended mandate. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, sorry, I beg your pardon. Continue, Aisha. Also, to provide the funding to form an entity to to facilitate private prosecutions. Furthermore, technical assistance in the form of investigative capacity and to capacity build our investigators at this institution that will do private prosecutions because uh, the NPA is either not capable or unwilling. Is that all, Aisha? Thirdly, the negotiations with the state must include the National House of Traditional Leaders and civil society actors led by Songhezo, who who you're currently speaking to. You can get his contact details. Henny van Fieren of Open open Secrets and uh, the economist Siraj O. Obedi- uh, uh, what's his name? Obedian. Irad's obedient. Yes. And so, you can decide who the other people at the table m- must be. And lastly... Peter is one of them. The, uh, lastly, <laughs> the, the funding must be sent not to the government, but to... Um, what's that man that does all the good work? Oh, Imtia um, Suleiman eh? of Gift of the Givers. Yes. Send the money to Gift of the Givers and then then, it will, then this work will, will really get done. That, that's all I want to tell him he must go do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aisha. Much appreciated. Well, the brief is pretty clear there, Lord Peter Hayne, and you're the closest one to the Queen of the Three in conversation now. Your response to that? Well, I think, Aisha, you should send uh, uh, an email to the British High Commissioner in Pretoria. That's the most um, direct 
way in which you can contact the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who'd have to respond to this? The thesis of what she's engaging really does speak to our colonial past and the role that Britain played in the subjugation of the African majority. A lot of our resources were plunged by, among many other people, the one who comes to characterize all of that which took place here is Cecil John Rhodes. And, of course, memorials to his life adorn, particularly the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape parts of the country. But really, those legacies ought to be genuinely engaged and with a new set of perspectives and eyes, as well as the role of Britain, certainly in the colonial period and immediately after that. Well, yes, and indeed in pitch battles, we, uh, Andre Udendahl and I, as co-authors, we explain how the first uh, figure of, of Basil D'Oliveira, um, Basil D'Oliveira had a an ancestor, if you like, and not a direct relative in Crom Hendricks, who was the first a black cricketer of uh, enormous ability, recognised by a touring English um, uh, cricketing side as of a fantastic fast bowler of world class, uh, maybe faster than anybody else in the world. And um, they said he should be in the South African team, and Cecil John Rhodes and his henchmen vetoed that. Uh, that was in the early 1890s. So a long time ago, and that was under British colonial rule. So Britain had its responsibility for sports apartheid as well, just as it had, through the likes of Rhodes and others, its responsibility for putting in place the system Mm. of racism that apartheid then refined to the most institutional system of racist tyranny that the world has ever known. I have one more question, um, and unless time permits, I may follow up on this. You've obviously done your work. As Madiba would have said, it is in your hands, and he would refer to people of my generation and the generation behind me. To the extent that you have picked up experiences in terms of holding systems to account, the political elite particularly to account, and to keep them honest to keep them real and on the ground as to the issues that affect people. You've given testimony at the Zondo Commission, so you are quite alive to what is happening in this country. And I no doubt know that you would have seen what happened earlier today in the President Zuma, or former President Zuma application in the Peter Marisberg High Court, insofar as it relates to his decision for incarceration by the Constitutional Court. From where you are and your experiences from both sides of the hemisphere, if you like, what do you say to young South Africans in holding authority to account, institutions to account, the system to account, to take away kleptocracy? Well, South Africans should be proud that they have the best constitution probably in the world. And there are not many constitutional courts in the world, if they exist at all, and very few, if any, have the powers of your constitutional court, which the the Mandela government bequeathed, and was uh, it was the brainchild of Oliver Tambo in exile and and Alby Sachs, mm-hmm. Judge Alby Sachs, of course, did the preparation. So I, I think it's imperative um, that everybody in the ANC stands by the constitutional court decision. If former presidents can flout it by judicial maneuvers, then that undermines the rule of law. Uh, And, uh, you know, as I say, there are not many countries where former presidents are 
um, put in prison by their constitutional courts. Uh, and it's to, South, it's to South Africa's credit, given the flagrant criminality and uh, abuse and corruption that, that President Zuma presided over and benefited from, as did his family and his cronies. And as important in his, his decade of rule, and, 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 and as, I, as I made clear, there were corrupt people before him and there are corrupt people since, politicians included, but it also did tremendous damage to the country. It, 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 it cost the country a fifth of its national wealth, a fifth. And that means people couldn't, can't get jobs, people can't get decent health care in the COVID crisis, people can't get decent schooling because that money's been looted and laundered abroad. And, and I was asked uh, back in 2017, when I first started to speak under parliamentary privilege in the House of Lords in Britain uh, about this and exposing what was going on to a global audience, that it was the international c complicity in this, whether it was the, the McKinsey's and the KPMG's or the HSBC banks or the Standard Chartered banks, these international corporates that have a, a global footprint they laundered the money and provided the legal advice and provided the auditing advice and the accountants' advice to uh, smuggle the money out of the country through digital pipelines from Johannesburg to Dubai and Hong Kong and, and India and elsewhere. Uh, and some of it went through London. And basically, the world was complicit in that. And that's, that's been my focus to, um, to to concentrate but I, I would just say to everybody listening to the program keep fighting you know the you never achieve everything you want and sometimes it's reversed as the as the Mandela vision and the establishment of a post-apartheid South Africa was reversed under Zuma uh, and there are still some politicians including very senior ANC politicians who are trying to get back to those gravy train days. So you've got to keep fighting that. And civil society and the independent media and uh, outspoken uh, public figures like yourself, Songezo, you know, it's important you each keep, because keep putting the pressure on because change only comes if you are, uh, if you're vigilant. What is the, 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 the price of freedom is eternal vigilance oh, or yes. something like that. Desmond Tutu said, said that. Archbishop Emeritus Tutu yeah, said that. Exactly. exactly. So Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Tutu, you know, is a is an important voice in all of this that, who should be respected. But each of us individually, it's no good moaning about everybody else. You've got to fight yourself. Yeah, let's leave it there. Time is always an issue here. We are a minute and a half over time. Lord Peter Haynes, sir, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Yeah, thank you, and you can get pitch battles in all good bookshops in South Africa. Oh, best believe I've got that. 2147, everybody. That was pitch battles. I'm sorry I couldn't ask your question, and I will be able to indulge you privately there, Mervyn Gilbert. Thanks to everybody who participated. 2147, that was The Viewpoint. Chat next week.